Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, You have the words, the words of life, God. We don't gather to, to see each other, Father. We don't gather to sing songs to one another. God, we come here to drink of Your living water. We come here to worship You and You alone. Pray that You would bless this time, God. That Your words would come alive in our hearts, would come alive in our minds, God. That we would love You and serve You and exalt You and You alone. Amen. Our passage today is going to be Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And as you're going there, let's get just a little brief recap of where we've been since we took a little time off for the Advent season. As Matthew begins his gospel, it becomes painfully obvious that the story of Jesus Christ does not begin with Mary and with Joseph, but rather it goes all the way back to the depths of the Old Testament. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah and his brothers. And so this story of Christ is coming out of the depths of the Old Testament as it goes forth. You see that this, this Christ, this Messiah that they have always been longing for has come. And he is given the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And then you have this fascinating story of the Magi coming from the East. And as Christ is only a baby, already you begin to see that the nations are coming to Him, that the people are coming to see the King and exalt Him and worship Him for who He is. And then in chapter 3, we see John the Baptist seemingly coming out of nowhere, going and baptizing people in the Jordan River for the, for the repentance of their sins. And He comes as a herald proclaiming the coming king. He says, no, 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 don't look at me, don't look at me. There is one who is greater than me who is coming, who I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I must decrease and he must increase. And as this John is baptizing people in the, in the Jordan, you see the religious elites there, kind of on the shores, scoffing at him. Why? Because they're not sons of God. No, 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 no. They're exalting themselves. They're sons of Abraham. That's who they are. They keep the law. Repentance. There's no need. I keep the law. And Christ, who's there watching it all, comes down. And he himself is baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And then he's tempted after fasting 40 days and 40 nights. He goes into the wilderness and he is tempted by the devil. And he proves himself to be the true Son of God. And rather than, than throwing himself down and taking the easy route, no, he embarks on the long road of suffering that his Father has laid out before him. And after he has proven himself to be the true Son of God, now the time is at hand. We are going to see the beginning of Christ public ministry, the beginning of Christ's 
ministry. So with that in mind, let's look to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12. We're going to go all the way down to 22, verses 12 through 22. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in the darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called to them, Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kind of the main outline of, of where we're going here, the main idea is, is pretty obvious. You can't improve on the words of Christ himself. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So then... Working verses 12 through 17, we're going to see the inauguration of this kingdom, how Christ establishes this kingdom. And then in verses 18 through 22, we're actually going to go through this section twice. The first time, we're going to be looking at the gathering of truths. Christ calling his disciples. Who is he calling them? Why do they follow him? And then finally, as we go through 18 through 22, the second time, we're going to look at the cost of citizenship for those who want to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's the main idea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verses 12 through 17, we're going to see the, the inauguration of this kingdom. Verses 18 through 22, the first time we're going to see the gathering of these truths. Second time through the section, we're going to see the cost of citizenship. Verses 12 through 17, let's unashamedly go back to the text and read it again. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen great life. For those dwelling in the region that shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, throughout world history, there are these, I guess you could call them flashpoints. And from these moments on, the trajectory of the world is drastically different, and it cannot go back to the way it was. So you have Alexander, not yet known as Alexander the Great, embarking zealously to take on the Persian Empire at the river of uh, Grancius River, and he wins. And forever, the world has changed. The Bible that we have written is written in Greek because of these events as we see them unfold. You see Julius Caesar gathering troops, crossing the Rubicon to, to declare war 
on the Roman Senate. He crosses the Rubicon and there is no turning back. And world history is different because of it. In our country, you see the Boston Tea Party and how it gives this, this moment where the people arise and they begin to think that they can, they can take on this English empire. And this leads to the shot around the world. Or in terms of literature, you see the publication of The Origin of Species. And the way we think, the way so many of us in this room think, is drastically different because of those moments. So likewise, in our text, we see the seeds of this kingdom of heaven that is now coming. And even now, we have little understanding of what it will fully be. But we will understand it when Christ comes again and we see him face to face. And the full glory of his kingdom is brought forth. So in verse 12, we see that John the Baptist, that the herald is now gone. He has been arrested by Herod Antipas. And he will soon be beheaded. And the forerunner is gone. And now it is time for the king to come and establish his kingdom. So Christ comes and he leaves his, his home of Nazareth where, where he has grown, where he is nurtured. And he goes about 20 miles to the northeast and settles in Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. But even this slight movement... This movement from, from Nazareth up to Capernaum is to fulfill Scripture. That cannot be, we, we can't miss that even these slight movements of Christ, where he's ministering, is done to fulfill Scripture. So as we, we often will oftentimes talk about the Christian life, as we look back at what Christ has done, and we are grateful for that, yet we also look forward to what will come in the future. So it is with the ministry of Christ. So, especially that we've seen this in Matthew. But so much of what he does is to fulfill what is set forth in the Old Testament as he's moving forward and inaugurating this kingdom. It's this looking back while moving forward. So we have this prophecy of Isaiah. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And we encountered these verses several weeks ago as we, we were going through these chapters in Isaiah for Advent. But as, as good students of the text, as good stewards of the Bible, we always want to be asking ourselves, what's the original context of this prophecy that we see in Matthew? What's the original context and how is it fulfilled in Christ? How, what's the original context? And how is it fulfilled in Christ? So the original context is this. The, the northern tribes have broken away from the southern tribes of, of Judah. So you have the, the older brother to the north. And he wants to rebel against the Assyrians. And so he gets the older brother, gets the neighbors, the Aram, to join, join together. And then you have this, the younger brother, Judah. Well, he doesn't want to go along with it. So what happens when the younger brother doesn't want to join the older brother in wreaking havoc against the parents? Well, the, young, the older brother turns on the younger brother. It happens all the time, right? So the older brother, the northern ten tribes, and the neighbor, Aram, well, they beat up on the younger brother, Judah. And it's a massacre, absolute massacre. This cannot be uh, diminished whatsoever. 120,000 troops 
killed in one day. 200,000 women and children carried off to be sold as slaves. And in the midst of this, the younger brother you know, cries out to Assyria, the parents. Well, then the parents come, and they see the kids fighting. They don't care who's at fault. They just give everybody a whooping. So the northern ten tribes, they're carried off, never seen again. The neighbor brother, they're carried off. The king is executed. And then we have the younger brother, Judah, who's given this prophecy, completely devastated. They thought the, the northern tribes were oppressing them. Well, they had no idea what the Assyrians would do and how bad it would truly get. And in the context of this, in the midst of this oppression, you have this flickering hope arising, coming up from the ashes. You have this flickering hope that they will see a great light. Well, obviously, but this is fulfilled in Christ. Christ has come and He is, I am, the light of the world. And living in the depths of the darkness, those living in those the land where this Naphtali and Zebulun, that's where Christ is going to minister. So in these land where they have seen the depths of the darkness, that's where Christ first goes and ministers and brings the light. So those who were the first fruits of exile are now the first fruits of God's grace in the ministry of Christ. Centuries. Centuries have gone by, and here is Christ bringing the light. So the first thing, I want, I want you to see the, the tactic that Christ is, is using here. This, this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is like any, un, unlike any other kingdom. So he's not coming in with his cavalry, with his swords, with his horses. No, no, he's coming in, and how is he doing it? Through preaching. Through the preaching of the word, Christ is coming to establish this kingdom. Why? For our struggle is not against the flesh and the blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the powers of the dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. So he's not establishing a kingdom of men, but no, the kingdom of God. What you are seeing here is the kingdom of God is coming down to earth. What a glorious thing. What a marvelous thing. As we look around and we see the brokenness around us. The brokenness that they lived in. The brokenness that we live in. What a marvelous thing that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is coming down to rescue His people, to redeem His people, to rescue you, to redeem you. What's His message? So we see His tactics, His preaching. What is, what's His message then? It's quite obvious. Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's easy. Well, yeah, that was 2,000 years ago, right? Um, but what about us? It's easy to read these, these words and go, repent. Well, good. They needed to, right? Amen. I hope they did. But we miss it when we see that, no, the, the call to repent is for me. It's for you. It's not just for them. It's, it's for you. Those who are dwelling in the land of darkness. That's not just them. That's you. 
dwelling in darkness. How often does it does it call out to us this this darkness just to 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 stay a little while? They're dwelling in darkness. They're not passing through. They're dwelling in darkness. It just calls out to us to stay a little while, to to get comfortable, to taste the sweetness of its sin. And and that's the story of all of us. Either if you're in Christ now, you know that's where you were, or if you're not in Christ, that's where you are now. And Christ is now calling out to you to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent of your sins. Repent of the hardness of your heart. Repent of your pride, as you now think, well, I have nothing to repent of. But repent of your pride. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that's our main idea. And we see that Christ has, he has come, he's embarking on his public ministry. This is a momentous event in the history of the world. Is The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is now coming, forth, coming down and ushering forth. And what is he going to do to establish his kingdom? He forgives sin, he casts out demons, he heals people. Heals the blind, raises the dead. That's the kingdom of heaven that we're going to see unfold throughout the rest of this gospel. And where does he come and bring it to? Where does his ministry focus at? It's the place of the deepest darkness. Those who have been living in darkness for centuries. That's where he goes. And we see the darkness again. It's not just them, but it's in the dark caverns of our heart as well. So we see that Christ has come that he's inaugurated his kingdom. And now we're going to be looking forward to this gathering of this troops. Typically, a king will gather troops and then try to fight and establish a kingdom. Christ comes, he declares the kingdom because he knows it's done. And then he gathers his troops. So with that in mind, let's go through verses 18 through 22. Verses 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers... Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. So here it is, this call, this call going out. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And here they are. Here, you see them, just Peter and Andrew casting their nets from the shore. So they're, they're, they're casting their nets in this, from the sea, from their boat, they're probably fishing. Maybe they were just cleaning their nets at that time. Doing what their father has done, what their father's father has done, what their great-grandfather had always done before them. And here comes Christ, and he says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately, it's repeated twice through the two different brothers, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Why? That's the question. Why? 
What do they see in him that makes them willing to drop everything, literally drop everything they have and go and follow Christ? So here they are, the people of God living in the land that God had promised Abraham, that he had promised Isaac, that he had promised Jacob. Yet they were still, they were back in the land, but yet they were still in exile. They lived under the Assyrians, they lived under the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. They are in this land, but they are always under the kings of someone else. Again, finding themselves grateful for what God has done, but longing for something greater. And then Christ comes and offers them to be fishers of men. And for somehow, for some reason, that is enough for them to leave all that they have known, all that they have had, and follow someone, perhaps, that they've never seen before. Now, perhaps Jesus was a well-known rabbi at this time, and, and he's given them you know, this, this great opportunity to follow him. But we simply don't know. There's this possibility. And as Matthew shows that there's, there's no interaction for them. He's seeing them for the first time, and they're seeing Christ for the first time. That's how Matthew's presenting it. And immediately, they drop everything and follow Christ. Why? I think this idea, as you look in the Old Testament, there's one reference. There's this fishers of men is referenced in the Old Testament. You see in Jeremiah 16, 16, I'll read it for you. But now, Jeremiah writes, I will send many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. After that, I will send many hunters, and they will hunt for them on every mountain and hill from all the crevices of the rock. And this, this, this prophecy is talking about how Christ is going to gather all of his people and send them into exile. So this idea of being a fisher of men is a, is a mark of judgment of God upon his people. But now Christ has come. And what is he doing? He's preaching the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of heaven has come. So these Fishermen have the opportunity to be a fisher of men, not for the not to bring exile, not to bring judgment, but rather to gather men for the kingdom of heaven. So you cannot you can't separate this the message from the call to follow. You you can't uncouple them. They're called to follow him, and they go because they realize there is nothing else that they can do. In light of this call to repent for the kingdom of the heaven is at hand, what else are they going to do? So later on in the ministry, as the disciples begin to see that this, this call to follow him comes with a great cost, they realize that it's, it's not for the faint of heart, and many of them begin to fall away. And we see in John 6, from this time, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Do you want to go and leave too? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Do you see this call of Peter to follow him? He realizes there's nothing else he can do. Christ has and has the words of life. It's the same thing we see with with James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, immediately they left their boat, they left their father, everything they have, everything they know, to follow him. And here you, we think, here you sit, 
And it's easy to think, again, that this call to follow him was just this grand call on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. No. It's, it's for you. Christ, in these words, in these words of life, is calling out to you, follow me, follow me. It's the same call for you, the call for them that Christ gives out to repent. It's the same call for us to repent, to follow me, that we have that same call in our lives as well. And invariably, we, as we see with Peter, that you can't uncouple this pronouncement from the kingdom of heaven is at hand to this call to follow him, how they're, they're one in the same. So it is with us. This call to follow him in this pronouncement that the kingdom of heaven has come down. So what are you doing? You are following Christ to follow him into this cosmic battle that the kingdom of heaven is not this kingdom of earth. So you're following Christ into this cosmic battle to establish the kingdom of heaven here on this earth that will declare the glory of God. Follow me. Follow me. We see how Peter responds. We see how Andrew responds. We see how James and John respond. Well, what about you? Christ is calling you to follow Him. For you, if you're not in Christ, Christ is calling you to follow Him, to see the holiness of God, to see the your deplorable sin in light of His holiness. To see and to know and to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. And if you are a Christian, Christ is still calling, follow me, follow me, into a deeper way to boldly proclaim the kingdom of heaven that it has come down. So we see, friends, this main idea of working under this repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see that Christ has come and established the kingdom, that he brings light into the darkest areas, and that he calls his troops, that he's calling these, these lowly fishermen, follow me. And now we're going to see the cost of following Christ, the cost of citizenship. Let's go through the verses again, 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. And so we see this call, this the cost to following Christ. It's there. In, we see it immediately. They left their nets. Immediately they left their boat and their father. And these, these were men. They're, they're ordinary men. They, they have families. They have jobs. They have responsibilities. And so what are they supposed to do? Really? Are they supposed to leave it all? Yes. Yes. We see that any encumbrance to following Christ is to be shed, is to be set aside. 
Is my, is, my delight, is my delight, is my duty to follow Christ so great that I'm supposed to be willing to leave everything? Well, Luke writes in chapter 14, If anyone comes to me, these are the words of Christ, does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So another one asked Christ, well, can I, can I go back and just bury my father? In the, Jewish, in the Jewish first century, there's two things you did. One, you said the Shema every day. Two, whatever it took, you buried mom and dad. You want to be a good Jew. That is what you do. What does Christ say? So he's, he's saying, Christ, can I go bury my father? Well, the, the, the usual understanding will be, well, yes, we'll take care of that. Do what the law says. Do what prudence says. Well, what does Christ say? Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Well, what, perhaps the cost is too great, you're thinking. Perhaps it's, it's just too much. We'll read the words that we see in Mark. And everyone who has left his Houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. So look at Peter that we see him on the shores of Galilee doing what his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather had done. And Christ comes, perhaps someone you has never seen before, and says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And what does he do? He goes. And Peter is married at this point. Peter is married. Yet he doesn't even allow his family to, to come in the way of making great sacrifices. You see this in soldiers all the time. They don't allow any encumbrance to their duty, to what they are called to do. And this call to follow Christ is no different. Shouldn't our sacrifices be that much greater than we see for men trying to establish the kingdom of men? Kingdoms that are dust on the scales make these great sacrifices. And we expect to make less for the kingdom of heaven. So when Christ is calling them to follow him, he knows what he's calling them to. Follow me, Peter. You'll be crucified upside down. Follow me, Andrew. You too will be crucified. Follow me, James. You'll be beheaded, as we see in Acts 12. And this is no surprise. Who's our great example? Christ. Christ has come down. He's left the throne room of God, and he has come down to establish this kingdom. And as a kingdom born upon his back, a kingdom of suffering. So we see that we are following in the lines of Christ. And you see this with the disciples in the early church. The call to follow him was a call to suffer, to forsake everything. They leave all the entanglements of this world to follow Christ. And throughout the ages, friends, the call to follow Christ has been a call to suffer, to give of yourself. So why do we think 
as we wrap this up here, why do we think it would be any different for us? Why? Why would it be any different from us? Would it be because there's no external persecution? Perhaps. But we can't allow this, this lack of persecution that we have, we must make sure that it is not the fruit of our lack of proclamation. If we're out there proclaiming the gospel, you tell your neighbor that he's a wretched sinner who deserves to go to hell and he can only go to heaven through Christ. If we start doing that, telling our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, undoubtedly persecution is going to come. Will it not? That's the tale that we see throughout history. So what does it look like for us to, to leave your nets and to follow him? Perhaps, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not for you to sell everything and to give all you have to the poor and move to the Middle East and church plant. Maybe that's not what God has for you. Maybe it is. Maybe God is, you're here. Maybe God has called you to Rochester, where you're here after all, right? I would say that even though you're here in Rochester, God is calling you to forego much, to give up much. Forego and give up your comfortable careers. I know that there are men in here who are supposed to give up their comfortable careers and embark on this life of ministry. To have more time to devote it to ministry. I know that is the case here. I look out and I, I talk to some of you and they are no less, even in our small church, there are no less than a half dozen men that I'm looking at right now who will be far greater preachers than the one you're listening to. But what do you do? You have to follow Him. You have to, to give it up. Wouldn't it be a shame if you didn't give it up? If you chose, rather, a little bit of comfort, a little bit of retirement from Mother Mayo, a little bit of leisure time? Wouldn't it be a shame if you gave up a life of ministry, how you were supposed to follow Christ? All for that? For a little comfort? For a little retirement? No, he calls to you. Follow me. Follow me. Don't let these sirens out there who are calling you to shipwreck your faith and comfort, don't let them call you out there. But rather, you have one who has had nails in his hands and a spear in his side, and he is calling you to follow him to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand to leave your nets and to follow him but friends I, I pray and I, I, I expect that you will I know that you will and I know that there are some of you now who you know you were supposed to give it all up to go into the ministry to radically change your life from this day forward. And that is what God has you to do. And so here is Christ calling you to follow me. Let us pray.
Father, we, as a church, we're, we're humbled that we, we have your words, the living words, the words of truth, God. Where are we to go? You have the words of truth. I pray that we would repent. Repent of our pride. Repent of our sin. We thank you for coming into the darkness, the dark caverns of our hearts. We thank you that you have called us to follow you. There are so many things beckoning us to follow them. So many pitfalls along the way, God. I pray that you would keep us pure. And that we would follow you, but in this, at the same time knowing that it is you who is pulling us along. God, I pray that we would be a people who forsake it all. Who follow our Savior who is, who's given up everything to come down and to pick up his cross and to suffer for the kingdom of heaven. I pray that we would be a church who picks up this cross and suffers for you and for your glory. Amen.